0: Everyone, Well, they say the job of a preacher is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So these two parables that we're looking at today kind of fall into that balance and we're going to do it in parts. We'll look at the first parable and then have a time of reflection and response and then if I've left myself enough time we'll do the second parable. Hopefully that will happen. So as Tricia said we're we're returning to Luke. And the first parable very much to do with prayer, and Luke is sometimes called the evangelist of prayer because prayer plays a big part in his gospel, slightly more than the others. So you find that the book of Luke begins with the people praying in the temple, and it ends with the disciples praying in the temple. And in between we read more about Jesus praying than in any of the other gospels, and we also have more of Jesus' teaching about prayer in Luke than any of the other gospels, And this parable in particular is one that's only found in Luke alongside another one in chapter 11 that has a very similar message that we've already looked at. So we're starting off with this this first parable and Luke tells us in verse 1 why Jesus told the parable. He doesn't often do that. says, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And when we put this parable in its context, it follows on from what Roger spoke about a couple of weeks ago of the whole context of when will Christ return, and all that's going on as the disciples would be waiting for that, the persecution, the troubles, the trials. And so Jesus, knowing this, tells this parable so that when they come to that point, they're not tempted to give up. So they do keep going, they do keep praying. And so this, this parable is very much to encourage us to keep going. And the way Jesus tells the story, this parable, sets up a scene where it would seem impossible for something to happen. So let's just look into it a little bit and, and examine the characters and see how they would have understood it when Jesus told this parable. So we have two characters in this certain town, it says in verse 2. First, a judge, and we're told that he doesn't fear God. Now, for a judge nowadays, that's probably quite a normal thing, and you'd expect them still to be, do their job, be fairly impartial. But, of course, for the Old Testament context, the number one criteria for a judge was that he should be a God-fearer. Because if you feared God, then you would apply his law, you would look into his law, and you would be able to give justice based on God's law. So to have a judge who doesn't fear God is quite a bad start. And, in fact, if we read in the Old Testament, we also see that as a widow, this this widow should have been privileged by the judge. Uh, It tells us in Deuteronomy that God is the one himself who carries out justice for the widow and the orphan. And in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah is speaking out against the rulers, telling them that they should have been taking care of the orphan and the widow. And part of the Jewish legal tradition then grew up around that to say that out of all the cases you had to hear in a day, you should put the orphan first and next the widow. So the fact that this guy is not a God-fearer means he's completely ignoring this biblical sense of looking after the widow who is in trouble. So he's not a good judge, despite the fact that we may think he's quite normal. Then the second thing about him, we're told that he doesn't care what people thought. Or, as other versions put, he doesn't respect man. And again, that might seem to us as kind of a good thing for a judge, not to be swayed or influenced by people. But of course, in their culture, this is talking more about the fact that he couldn't be shamed into doing the right thing. Because in the Middle East, the Mediterranean, there's still a strong culture of shame and honor. You should do the right thing for honor. And if you don't, it brings shame onto you, your family, your community. And so to have a a judge that couldn't be shamed meant that you couldn't persuade him to do the right thing with any social pressure and that he was just going to do what he felt like. This was a hopeless case, if you like, for this judge. I can remember living in Spain the similar idea that if if someone was uh, had been hard done by by someone else, they were a victim in a case or the family of the victim, along with all the very colourful sort of swear words they use in Spanish. One of the strongest, surprisingly, was to call someone shameless, a sinvergüenza If you didn't do what was right, you had no shame, and that was kind of like, alongside all the other swear words, was kind of the worst thing to be in Spain. And so it's similar here. If you don't have shame, you are unable to be persuaded to do the right thing. And we see that in the Old Testament too. Jeremiah pre- preaches against the prophets and the leaders and the priests and says, when they did the wrong things, were they ashamed? No, they were not at all ashamed. He says they didn't even know how to blush. So this is a much stronger sense than for us of someone who's shameless. Um, in contemporary to Jesus' time, they wrote about the robber judges of Jerusalem and the village judges who are willing to, to pervert justice for a dish of meat. So the people listening would have said, yeah, we know all about these kind of judges. They've been throughout our history, and they're here right now, and this widow hasn't got a chance. There's no way anything's going to happen for her. And then when we think about the second character, the widow, that makes it even more unlikely. Obviously, she seems to be in the right. She's asking for justice. But as a widow, things are stacked against her. She's too weak to be able to force any kind of justice, As a poor person, she would have no money to pay the judge, which is obviously what he would be looking for. And as a widow, she would have no voice. She had no male representative to stand up in court and speak for her behalf. So in the the Old Testament, the widow, along with the orphan and the foreigner, become a symbol for this oppressed group of people that have no voice. And so by uh, using a widow here, Jesus is setting up a situation where there's a corrupt judge and a hopeless, helpless widow this is a, a no-win situation. This is completely impossible. This is not just Wales trying to win the Euro Cup. This is England <laughs> trying to get there. So this is <laughs> never going to happen. That's right for you, Chris. The one thing, though, that she does have, and the disciples, as they're listening, will be saying, well, surely God's going to intervene. He's going to strike dead this rotten judge. Or someone's going to come along and take her part. Someone more powerful. This is how it's going to end. But Jesus says, no. The one thing she has is persistence. She keeps on coming. Even though it's hopeless. She knows it's hopeless. But she keeps on coming. And this is the only way this situation is turned around. By a helpless, hopeless widow's persistence. Keeping going. And we read in verse 4. The judge himself evaluates it. He says, you know, I don't fear God. I'm not going to do the right thing for that. I'm shameless. I don't care what people think. But because she keeps on coming to me keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming, or as it was read, she won't eventually attack me. And in the original it says, actually, she won't give me a black eye. Well, (laughs) obviously there's not much chance of that from a widow, but it's just saying how persistent she is, is wearing this poor guy down. And of course, we can't think of a, a modern court scene where the judge is nicely locked away. This is the city gates where they do the judgment. So the widow can be there every morning, every evening, yelling in the background while this poor old judge is trying to make a fast buck from all the other people he could try and get bribed by. So she's basically giving him a huge headache, and he can't take it anymore. And he says, you know what? This widow is never going to stop. I'm not going to do it for the right reasons, but I'm just going to do it because I want to get rid of her. So he says this key statement, I will give her justice. So that would have been a huge shock for the people hearing that just through her persistence she's managed to gain justice. And then Jesus takes it and he he begins to apply the parable and he says, well, guess what? Let's compare the judge with God. Now this is not a comparison of like with like, but of contrast. Jesus says, verse 6, listen to what the unjust judge says. So we take care that he has just said, I will give her justice. This is the response. And then he says in verse 7, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? So this is a how much more. The, the, if a rotten, corrupt judge through the persistence of a widow will give justice, how much more will not the judge of all the earth who does right give justice to his chosen ones? There can be no doubt that God is patiently listening to us, ready to respond. He's not like this judge who brushes aside the widow because she can't pay him or influence him. He's not like these corrupt Old Testament judges that said they pushed aside the poor. No, he listens to us. In fact, one way of reading the end of verse 7 is not to say that he will give justice. um, Sorry, verse 7, will he keep putting them off? But to say, actually, he is patient with them. God patiently listens to us, even though we have no real right to come by our own any kind of merit, but he patiently hears us and receives us, unlike this corrupt judge. So this is a contrast, a wicked judge who won't do the right thing with God our Father, the just judge who has patience for us and receives us in and hears our pleas. And not only that, it promises in verse 8a that he will respond speedily. Will he not see that they get justice and quickly? Now that kind of leaves us with a question in our minds. No, we don't have to twist God's arm to do what's right, but sometimes it doesn't. certainly doesn't feel like God acts speedily on our behalf. So if God is willing to listen and is patient with us and speedy to act, why don't we see that in the many different struggles we're facing? And to answer that question, we can't answer it maybe 100% to our liking, but I think it helps to carry on the comparison, and compare the disciples and ourselves with this widow. So it's not, again, a direct comparison, although there are some things we we need to take from her. Because even though we may feel helpless and hopeless like this widow, Jesus says a key phrase. He says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? That's our status. Not a helpless widow, but a chosen one. That's our status because of who we are in Christ. Romans 8.33 says, Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? His chosen ones. No one, because it's God who justifies. And he goes on to say that nothing can separate us from Christ's love, neither death nor angels, you name it, because in Christ we are more than conquerors. That's our status when we come to God. More than conquerors, his chosen ones. But like the widow, we do need to persist in prayer. She kept coming despite the odds, day and night, it says, about his disciples. They should be the ones calling out to him day and night, just like the widow. No matter what, not giving up. And when I think about it, I think, well, how many times have I not seen answers to prayer because I haven't done my part, which is to persist in prayer? How many times have I been ready to throw the towel in on my own faith or my faith in a particular something going on, and I've given in short of the target because I haven't taken the stance of this widow to keep on praying. And I think as well we need to see this prayer as not just prayer for personal wants. Uh, This widow is not seeking a better life, she's seeking justice. And if we're passionately praying for justice and those kind of things in our life, then we can come to God very confidently. When you look through Luke, prayer is never just about personal wants. In fact, that's very secondary. It's always about these bigger things of staying faithful, not falling into temptation, living out the gospel. So if our prayer life can't be distinguished from the typical desires of the world around us, there's something wrong with it. And that challenges me. How often am I passionately praying about these bigger issues, about the salvation of my family, my neighbors, the way my children are living, And how often am I just got my list of needs or wants and putting them before God? And how quickly do I give up when I don't see the immediate answer? What keeps me up at night praying and seeking God? What keeps me coming back to God time and time again like this widow? So we need to learn from her that no, we're not like her in terms of being helpless. We are God's chosen ones, but we do need to be like her in terms of seeking God persistently and not giving up. So there is this difficulty of unanswered prayer. If God acts speedily and we keep persisting, you know what's going on here? But I think we have to live with that tension of being in a fallen world, we're not there yet in heaven, and we live with this unreconciled differences of wanting to see God's answer and not yet seeing it all the time. God does act graciously, and we praise God for those times. But many others, it seems that his definition of quickly is much, much slower than my definition of quickly. It's much like my children. When I say, give me a minute, for them, in five seconds, they're asking again. And for me, in half an hour, I said, oh, has that minute gone by yet? So that's maybe how it works. We've got a bit. Our time scale is a bit different to his. We can't determine when or how God answers. But we can determine how we pray and what we pray for. Are we going to persist? Are we going to keep going and not give up, no matter what the circumstance? And this is how Jesus puts this prayer into the context when he asks right at the end, the last part of verse 8, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that might seem a strange question to end a parable with, but it ties it into what I said before. This is about the end times, looking for Christ's return, the struggles, the trials, saying, when will God act? When will God intervene? And so what Jesus is challenging us with this question of will he find faith is through everything we're going through, will he find the kind of faith of the widow that persists until the end, whatever that end is, whether it's Christ's return or our going home or our loved one going home, will we persist in faithful prayer and not give up? Do we have that kind of faith? Will Christ find that kind of faith that perseveres, that clings on to God in the darkest of days, that's convinced of God's gracious patience and his will for good in our lives, even when we don't see it. That is the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. And that's why he told this parable, that we might continually pray and not lose heart. It's a story we do need to hear. So, Thanks, Trish.